Welcome to People and Profit, I'm Kate Moody. Coming up, what place for sustainability at Paris Fashion Week? We'll speak to activist Livia Firth about the pitfalls of the fast fashion industry, how consumers can encourage change, and how designers are catching up. Chips and China, why geopolitical tensions surrounding Taiwan are raising the stakes in the international race to make more semiconductors. And Australia is poised to scrap its so-called golden ticket visa program. Our correspondents look at the pros and cons of the investment scheme that's drawn millionaires down under for the past decade. Among the trends hitting the catwalk at Paris Fashion Week this autumn are recycled fabrics and ethically sourced materials. Sustainability and environmental impact are increasingly part of the design process for many fashion brands. The market for so-called fast fashion, however, is still thriving. It's worth nearly $100 billion and still growing. It comes at a cost for the planet. The UN says the fashion industry is responsible for up to 10% of global carbon emissions. We're joined now by Livia Firth, co-founder and creative director of the consulting agency Echo Age and a longtime advocate on environmental and sustainability issues in the fashion industry. Thanks so much for being with us today. This is no longer a niche topic. We've seen both high and low end clothing brands regularly talking about their impact on the environment. Are you seeing concrete signs of change? Well, as you said, it's not a small niche anymore to the point that today we are actually in quite a bit delicate moment because there is everyone wants to do sustainability. Everyone talks about sustainable fashion and there is more greenwashing than has ever been. So to cut through the noise is quite difficult, particularly for the so-called consumers, which is a term that I hate because I'd rather call them active citizens, um, that are getting basically mixed messages about what they should do and you know which brand they should buy. So let's cut, try to cut through some of that noise a little bit. In your opinion, what is it that makes a piece of clothing or a brand sustainable? Well, I always say that we wouldn't be here talking about sustainable fashion if fast and disposable fashion didn't exist. So the most uh, simple answer to your question is, the most sustainable garment is a garment that you keep for the rest of your life. So when you invest in quality clothes that you take care of and you know you dress, you wear with pride throughout your life, throughout the years, that is automatically sustainable. And this is how fashion used to be. And then fashion became disposable. It became like a sandwich or going to the cinema. It became something that you consume one, two, three times, and then you throw away. There's no question, though, that fast fashion is an industry that is here to stay. It's it's a real part of the fashion industry now. We've seen a lot of these sort of mass market brands launching what they describe as sustainable or eco-conscious collections. Um, are any of them doing a good job? They're not. First of all, fast fashion is a business model based on producing huge number of items, incredibly fast, incredibly cheap. When you produce so cheaply, you can only do it um, by uh, using cheap labor, which equals slave labor. So it's an industry that is being empowered and enabled by uh, exploitation. And this is changing fast because the European community, um, America, they're starting to to talk about some quite strict legislations 
which will put a very, very, um, will become more and more difficult for brands to practice exploitation. And then you have materials and the fast fashion industry in particular relies on cheap synthetic fibers, which are oil-based. And in an era in which we're talking about divesting from the fossil fuel industry, you have 70% of the fashion industry that relies on oil-based textile. So if you look at these two factors and you project them in 10 years from now, the only brands that will survive are the brands that will start understanding which measure to put in place seriously about taking care of their garment workers and paying them a, you know, a, a proper wage and brands who will understand how maybe to, to use more and more natural fiber and fibers that come from regenerative agriculture, for example. What about the people who have bought from, from the fast fashion industry over the last few years? I know you don't like the word consumers, but people who don't necessarily have the money to invest in pieces that might last forever. Um, people who don't have money to invest, they don't buy cheap clothing on repetition. So people who don't have money don't consume um, like recklessly or without thinking about it. So the problem is not that. The problem is that we have been addicted to consuming like we've been addicted to sugar. And therefore, um, we have to almost like wean ourselves and understand that it's not really necessary to constantly change our wardrobe, to constantly wear something different. We can keep the same clothes. And in the end and in the long term, you actually save a lot of money because if you do the price per wear, you actually realize that you spend way more by every year buying tons of clothes from a fast fashion brand rather than one item from a good quality uh, brand that maybe costs a little bit more. So where do you think the change in this industry needs to come from? Is it from a consumer and from a consumer and shopper's point of view or is it the companies themselves and the regulators? Well, the change only happens if it's done holistically and in partnership. And in this case, you have three stakeholders. You have governments who absolutely need to start regulating the market and the industry. You have the businesses who have to actually seriously invest money rather than in philanthropic um, operations or in silly capsule collections that take nowhere in actually changing their business model and understanding properly how to do it. And with the citizens or consumers who have to understand that they don't have we don't have to shop fast and furiously all the time. So if, if, if we have this systemic approach from the three stakeholders, change can happen and can happen very fast. Livia Firth, thank you so much for joining us on People in Profit today. Well, semiconductors are a crucial part of the modern economy. They're present in everything from cars to fridges to smartphones. A recent global shortage has prompted the EU and U.S. to each outline $50 billion plans to boost domestic production of those tiny chips. Recent geopolitical tensions surrounding Taiwan have heightened the sense of urgency because of its essential spot in the semiconductor supply chain. Charles Pellegrin is here with more. Charles, why is Taiwan so important to the semiconductor industry? 
Well, Kate, Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company, the island's national tech champion, is a formidable force in the global chips industry. Today, the group is the contract fabricator of more than half of the world's semiconductors. And when it comes to the top of the line of chips, well, they put together 92% of them. This uh, made TSMC the world's 10th most valuable company in the world in 2021. Now, Taiwan is a real flashpoint in geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China. How does the chip industry play into those tensions? Well, as a quick reminder first, uh, Taiwan is, is self-governed, but the People's Republic of China considers it a breakaway province that needs to be reunited with the mainland by force if necessary. And actually, Taiwan's semiconductor sector could be its best defense, what some are calling its silicon shield. That's because both China and the U.S. are dependent on Taiwan. TSMC makes 70% of the chips used in China and 92% of the chips that are designed in the U.S. This means both superpowers have a strong incentive to avoid any kind of invasion, which could affect TSMC's production capacity, while trying to ramp up their own. So what has China do, done to boost its own manufacturing capacity, and has it worked? Well, Beijing uh, first launched a chip fund in 2014. Over time, this has ballooned into a huge investment plan worth $1.4 trillion, with some positive results. China now produces more chips than the U.S., for instance, with 15% of global output. And its local champion semiconductor a manufacturing international corporation, SMIC, has now succeeded in fabricating a 7-nanometer chip, Nonetheless, it's struggling to catch up with the cutting-edge leaders who can produce more advanced 3-nanometer chips, perhaps a sign that China's top-down approach isn't optimal. Several executives and officials involved in the state-supported venture have been arrested on graft charges this year. Charles Pellegrin, thanks so much for that update. Australia has one of the world's most restrictive migration programs, but one scheme, dubbed the Golden Ticket, rolls out the welcome mat for those with deep pockets. The controversial significant investor visa could now be scrapped, with critics saying recipients are effectively buying their way into the country. Our correspondents Rochelle Harrison and Gregory Pless report from Sydney. Space and sunshine in abundance. The Australian lifestyle attracting high net worth individuals on what's known as a Significant Investor Visa or SIV. The program provides a pathway to permanent residency for those who pour nearly three and a half million euros into Australian investments. The visa recipients France 24 reached out to declined to appear on camera, but one, a Chinese national who bought property in this upmarket Sydney suburb, said they don't have the language skills required for any other local visa. But they do contribute, according to Richard Yuan, a migration agent who has helped dozens of people secure SIVs. I think these people, when they bring in all this uh, business know-how and capital, they will, they will create, they will create employment. He says Australia will be worse off if the country's Labor government moves to scrap the scheme in October. More than 2,300 SIVs have been granted since the program began in 2012. Recipients buying luxury apartments in some of the country's wealthiest postcodes. 85% of successful applicants are from mainland China. So far, they've brought around 8 billion euros worth of investments into the country. But critics say Australia isn't getting bang for its buck. Because business investment visa holders are older, less skilled and learn, earn such low incomes, they actually cost the Australian taxpayer about $120,000 over their lifetimes in Australia 
because they draw more in public services and benefits than they pay in tax. The government recently announced plans to increase the migration cap by more than 20%, with hopes it will help solve an economy-wide skill shortage. Experts say that abolishing the SIV and reallocating those places to skilled worker applicants could generate more than 80 billion euros over the next 30 years. That's all for now. Don't forget you can find this and our previous shows on the France 24 website or as a podcast wherever you usually listen. You can also get in touch with your comments and questions on social media. Until next time, thanks for watching.